You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going here, I want to tell you about something that may be an afterthought in your life, but it shouldn't, and that is your socks. If you ever wanted a more comfortable, higher quality, better fitting sock, Bombas has made just that. They've made socks that are engineered and designed to be better. They sent me some. I've got them on. I'm going to tell you a little bit how they feel. Uh, they're not falling down at all. They've got this sort of stay-up technology where they stay exactly on the same place and in your foot all the time. They are warm in the winter and cool in the summer thanks to extra-long staple cotton. I can attest to that because it is somewhat chilly outside and it is about 98 degrees in the studio right now, and yet I'm still so comfortable. Um, anyway, additionally... Bombas socks are donated to homeless shelters, one pair for every pair bought. So you're doing something good for the world, you're doing something good for yourself, and you're doing something good for this show when you purchase them by going to bombas.com slash longform, 20% off your first order, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash longform. Again, 20% off that first order. Yeah, Why not throw away all your socks and get some new socks? You're going to feel good if you do that. Thank you, Bombas. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff. Hey. And who is this, Evan? Zaley. Zaley, the newest host. You guys are hosts. Everyone bringing their babies in here. I'm going to I'm gonna have to rent a baby so I can feel, uh, feel like I belong. You should rent a baby. You should just rent a baby for a whole variety of reasons. You could rent this baby. <laughs> I don't want your baby. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, who'd you talk to for this week's episode? I talked to Gabriel Snyder, who's the editor-in-chief of The New Republic, um, also formerly rented a desk in this office. <laughs> I, I like to believe in causation, which which would suggest that anyone who, who rented a desk over here would become the editor of a venerable uh, magazine institution. Does, uh, does Gabriel think of his time renting a desk in this office as like the pinnacle of his career or editing The New Republic? Uh, probably neither. <laughs> Um, but he's a really interesting guy. He's he's seen a lot in his days. He was uh, the, an early editor of Gawker. He was at the Atlantic Wire. He's he's been around. And um, as people who listen to the show would probably know, uh, the New Republic has gone through um, several massive changes in the last few years. Uh, was sold a few weeks ago. Um, he is still the editor in chief, of course. And you know. It's interesting to talk about how you keep putting out a magazine and doing your job while a lot of stuff is happening in the background. Magazine with a lot of tradition. 
a lot of tradition. Um, so anyway, thanks to him for coming in again. He knew where the office was. Sounds great. Who else would uh, would you thank if we were to say doing an intro? I would thank Mailchimp. I actually just signed up for my second Mailchimp account this week, and I am very happy to report I'm not even paying for that one. It's a new list. More on that to come, but uh, you don't have to pay for it until you get 200 subscribers. So you can stub it on out. Ga 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 ga. Zaley, very excited about Mailchimp. Thank, thanks wow. to them for sponsoring the show. Zaley, um, what has your dad been working on? Zaley knows very well. I've been yeah. working day and night on yeah, well, a series of stories for the Atavis magazine called The Mastermind. It's about a. That's it. Yeah. It's about a programmer turned into a cartel head, international cartel head. Uh, and we're doing it in seven parts, and the third one's just out last week, and then the fourth one will be out this week. Mastermindativist.com? Yep. Check it out. Put it in the show notes. The story is amazing. Zaley's <laughs> <laughs> very enthusiastic about the mastermind. Yeah. Who's your favorite host? Yeah. Not I know you, wouldn't want, you don't want to say it in front of us, but we, we know. It's me. <laughs> Here's Zaley's favorite host with Gabriel Snyder. Welcome, Gabriel Snyder. Thank you. We are former desk mates in this yes. office. I, 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 I was gonna. I thought that I needed to disclose that, although I'm not exactly sure <laughs> what I'm disclosing. Uh, you are a former tenant uh, of this um, sort of officey, co-workingy kind of thing we had going here. Yeah. Um, we were not your landlords. We were just your simple no conflict of interest. No conflict. There's really there. There was no nothing. Nothing untoward <laughs> happening. But it gave me sort of a peek into what your work life at the time was like, which I think is probably this was that was what two years ago, a year yeah. and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. You've done a lot since uh, <laughs> since then. So at the time you were working out of this office, you were I was working on an app. An uh, app, okay. Yeah, Sorry. Called Inside. What what was that all about? It, it was one of the many attempts to try to make a better news experience on your phone. Right. I'm interested in 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 what sort of a career trajectory lands you in charge of figuring out what news should go in an app. So what what was your first job in uh in the fine world of yeah. media, I started out at the New York Observer, um, yeah. and I was working. I was hired by Peter Kaplan as a fact checker um, out of college. I I had never heard of the New York Observer because I didn't live in New York. I remember picking it up uh, for my interview, and uh, I went to Yale and it was picked up in New Haven and read it on the way down. And um, the first story I ever wrote, I ever read in the New York Observer was Warren St. John's um, report about the Stephen Glass um, uh, mm-hmm. revelations. And when you transitioned to, to being an editor at Gawker, like what yeah. what was that like? Um, I mean, shifting kind of from like this print institution to a bloggier web institution, yeah. shifting from a writer to an editor. I really kind of made a decision that I liked writing too much to make it my living. In between those jobs, I had writing gigs briefly at Us Weekly and W Magazine and Variety. And I liked them. I mean, there was, I liked some, some better than others. Um, but there was just this feeling that the need to stay employed was was not really allowing me to do the kind of work 
I wanted to do. What was the kind of work that you wanted to do? I think the kind of work that every person, you know, I've interviewed tons of writers and it's amazing how they all say the same thing. Everyone wants to write long form features. Uh, yes. You know, you want to, um, and, and the stuff that I've done that I'm most proud of is, you know, the kind of observational long form pieces of with great characters and amazing scenes. And I think that's sort of a really seductive vision that brings a lot of people into, into journalism. Well, let's talk about that because you're the editor in chief of the New Republic. So when you deal with a writer and you're kind of saying, hey, I want you to, to come work for the New Republic, like, what do you tell them that you as an institution provide that will make their work better? I think we provide a lot. Um, I mean, coffee, coffee, <laughs> snacks. I think first off, and, and forgive me for sounding a little self-serving, but I think all writers need good editors. Yes. Um, and it's impossible to pull off ambitious work without being in dialogue with someone is one of my tenets. Um, I don't believe people can lock themselves in rooms <laughs> and come out with highly polished, polished work. As an editor-in-chief, you can sort of have this vision for this, the work you want to do, but it falls to writers to actually do the work. <laughs> so you will fail if you don't convince people to do the work you, you want to do. And I think that most people, given, say, the staff of The New Yorker, yeah. can succeed. But you don't start with the staff of The New Yorker. <laughs> um, in the case of Gawker, you started with some pretty young and inexperienced people, several... It's like the NBA, you know. Yeah. You gotta, you need uh, undervalued assets. That yeah. you, you gotta, you gotta pick people who, who other people aren't. What do you look for in in a young person? Between the New Republic and in, in the way we we went last year, the Atlantic Wire, Gawker, I've definitely had several jobs now where I've had to you know build a staff from 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 scratch or close to scratch. Yeah. And I'm I'm really proud of the the people that I've hired. I, I think one of um, you know one of the joys of being editors you have to bask in the reflected glory of of, of your writers. And I kind of um, I don't know if, if 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 other if they agree, but I, I kind of view that as as lasting in perpetuity. Um, you know, even if they stop working for me. But uh, <laughs> so you get ten percent of Adrian Chen's salary forever. <laughs> no, no, no. Just uh, you know, I'm very proud of Adrian. Yeah. And, and, and I, I uh, and, 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 as you should be. Uh, you've done great work. I don't look at resumes. I, 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 I look at work. I look at what people can do. I mean, I think that my simple philosophy has been have a clear idea of what the job is and then go find people who can do it. I mean, it, it doesn't get much simpler than that. And the hard part, I think, is is knowing what the job is, like really being able to say, okay, I need someone who can figure out what the news of the day is and write up a, a briefing um, in the morning. Like, I need to know what that is. Or I need someone who, like Jeet here, who, you know, I kind of was amazed, didn't have an outlet when I was looking around at, at staffers, who knows, you know, the intellectual and, and political history of the 20th century backwards and forwards um, and can write about it in an accessible way. Yeah. And, you know, and you just go out and look for people who are who are who are doing that. Um, I, I think it I think it does come back to vision. It, 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 it really it requires having a really strong vision for for what what you want your publication to be. You know, and it, when it comes to editorial voice, that's something that I do bring other things I don't have a strong uh, opinion like I'm not a visual designer um, and so you know we have this amazing 
art director Parker Hubbard, and um, and so you know my discussions with him are a lot different. Where it's like you know I want this kind of thing, and I have to. And it's actually been a, 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 a something, especially with with designers and and photo editors that I've had to kind of learn how to talk about it. That here's the problem: can you solve this problem? Right. Um, which is a totally different approach when when I'm trying to hire writers. Uh, Did you ever think that you would end up like having to produce a print magazine? I really didn't. I, I thought that I really enjoy being an editor, um, but I figured that everyone who was going to, um, all those jobs were taken and weren't, and weren't going to be passed on. Hey, listeners. I'm going to pause things here for a minute because I want to tell you about something that I have been enjoying, namely the shaving experience with Harry's. I have never enjoyed uh, going to a drugstore and buying more razors than I want for more money than I want to spend. And the person comes out with that little tiny key and it's an uncomfortable experience. Instead, I'm now getting my razors in the mail from Harry's. Uh, They've got this nice starter kit they send me, beautiful box, three cartridges, German-engineered five-blade razors. These are these are very nice. Also, a razor handle. Also, some shaving cream. Everything you need. Cutting out the middleman. Shipped right to your door. Only fifteen bucks for the starter kit. But but long-form listeners can get an additional five bucks off. It's only ten bucks for the starter kit. Come on, give it a shot. Harrys.com. H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Put in promo code longform. You'll get five bucks off. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com today and start shaving the right way. All of us hosts have been doing it. It's a purely uh, clean-shaven uh, experience here now. We're getting a lot more respect. It's, go- it's going great. Thank you, Harry's. Okay, so now you have cleaned up your face. Now you need to clean up your clothes, and there is no better way to do it than with Trunk Club. They have totally rebooted my co-host Max Lindsay's wardrobe. I have not seen his pants from college for weeks now as a result of Trunk Club. Let me tell you how it works. I'll tell you how it worked for Max. He went online. He told them what kind of stuff he liked, what he was wearing, his size. They assigned him a stylist who picked out some new clothes for him that I can attest are much better than the clothes he was previously wearing. Send it in a trunk. He tried them on, kept the ones he liked. They look great. Everybody won. It's not a subscription service. You only pay for the clothes you keep from your trunk. No hidden charges, just great clothes. So I want you to go to trunkclub.com slash longform. You'll get a free trunk full of clothes plus free shipping both ways. You only pay for the clothes you keep. Again, trunkclub.com slash longform. It's the best way to reboot your wardrobe today. Thank you, Trunk Club. Here I am back with Gabriel Snyder. You came to the New Republic amidst uh, something of a storm. Uh, Chris Hughes bought the New Republic in 2012, I believe. And he, for a while, sort of kept the staff on. And then there was uh, Franklin Foer was fired as the editor. A lot of people quit in protest and you became the editor. So not the most auspicious um, first date. Did you know going in that it was going to be... No. A tumult? No. No, definitely not. Would have you done it if you had known what how it would have gone? Good question. I don't know. I don't know. You know, the strangest thing about the New Republic and sort of the, the public discussion about it is um, 
it feels very disassociated from anything that I and my my staff have have been doing. I, I I definitely you know I had a really strong vision for what I thought the New Republic ought to be in you know the year twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen. And I think that you know it's a media story that was sort of designed for the hot take age. Um, you know, it, it it touched a lot of people's hobby horses. Silicon Valley, generational change. Yes. You know, uh, the the role of technology, the, the 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 literary culture. I mean, all of these things that people had a lot of opinions on. And in in fact, one of the things that struck me was. Uh, when when Chris announced that we were for sale, is how similar um, the hot takes were yeah. um, then as when um, in, in in December of, re- of 2014 re- reheated takes. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, and that and that to me was a real clue that you know this was not about the work. It was not about what we were doing. And so, um, so the last year of the many concerns and and and, and to the extent that you know people want to talk to me about. Um, or get get my sense of I don't know that debate. It, it really has been going on outside of 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 the staff. It's it, what we've experienced has been completely different than um, than that. So so I kind of almost view it as you know this 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 outside world. Is it possible to not take it personally on some level? I, mean, I think that's what I was getting at with the yeah. Gawker thing too, which is. I mean, I've been to your office. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's wood paneled. It seems like a good place to do some work. Yeah. It's kind of like a library. I could totally see holding up in there. It seemed like it had a nice coffee machine <laughs> and being like, "Fuck what people say. I don't give. I don't care." But I know that you spend a lot of time on Twitter, yeah. as I do. I know who you follow. On. I mean, I know that you must have felt like you were the big story of the day, not you personally, yeah. but the magazine that oh, you are yeah. the editor in chief of. So. Does that stuff, do you start thinking about that, like, not as, you know, a person who's tangentially related to the New Republic, but as in some ways the, the figurehead uh, of the New Republic? Well, I had two concerns, the, um, you know, when, when all of that happened. The, yeah. the, the first was, would this cloud of, of hot takes that didn't really have much to do with us in a way obscure what the work we were doing? And and I think that we've broken through through that. I think the other thing that... I didn't understand um, really as much was just the extent of animosity the publication had engendered, especially with uh, with people of color. My vision for the New Republic uh, was um, as a as a high schooler. The New Republic was one of the publications I read, and that was that was that was the '90s era. It's this publication that seems you know a lot of the the, the stories is it it comes and finds people um, you know, and I've been very familiar with the uh, now the, the 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 founding history of it, and and the the original vision is so compelling but also so durable. The first words of the very first issue are, frankly, the New Republic is an experiment. And and then, and I don't have the second sentence memorized, but the experiment's defined. Um, it, 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 it basically says, um, you know, can a publication reach a broad national audience without being dumb? Um, that's my paraphrase of it. You know, and at the time, 1914, you know, that was sort of a moment when the national press was really sort of coming into its own. There, you know, before then, you largely had a regional press. Um, you you read your city newspaper, and so these, you know, 
publications, um, some of them very lurid, were, were starting to kind of find these national audiences. And Herbert Crowley kind of saw that as an opportunity to create something more high-minded than what, you know, the Joseph Pulitzers and the William Hearsts were, 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 were creating. And I think about that, and I feel like, well, that's exactly what's happening now, right? We, we, we as publishers are um, have the ability to reach such a bigger audience than ever before, um, you know. And yet, we look at the, the our Twitter feeds, and we see a whole bunch of crap. And and it's really, really tempting to say. You know, I'm gonna go over here, and 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 I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go into my little my little uh, you know enclave and try to tune that world out and 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 maintain my culture in this little this little pocket. I think the thing that whatever my temperament is 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 closer to Crowley's in that. I want to figure out how to engage that larger audience, take that opportunity, and and make something that is intelligent. And so, the uh, and then of course the other thing that you know that the the New Republic was founded was was being a progressive vehicle. I mean, it was kind of late progressive era, um, yeah. you know, and it was a an organ that was. Um, Imagining what we should do about these new forces that were reshaping our politics, our economy, the 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 the, the world affairs, a lot of it was uh, focused on you know structural stuff. Um, you know, the the week before the first issue was published was the election day in 1914, the midterms, and it was the first time that all senators were popularly elected. Um, it was several years before women had the right to vote. Um, you know. It was at a time when Roosevelt and Wilson were debating what the proper role of government was in regulating these new national corporations. It was a time when um, America was emerging as a global superpower. And what does all of this mean? And I think that, you know, that also strikes me as so familiar that we're now thinking about whether it's the Snowden revelations about NSA and 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 the Sony hack and even the Ashley Madison hack. You know what are these massive piles of data? Uh, what what do we do about them? You know how do we we know they make our lives easier because when I open my phone, it can tell me where you know the nearest ATM is. But at the other other hand, I've got a surveillance device in my pocket, and, right. and we know how how easy it is to be abused. So I was always just struck by how. That outlook um, mm. was necessary for for us, but what had changed was that the best way to engage a a, a, a national audience wasn't by printing a magazine every week on paper and, and and sending it out on newsstands. We know that the best way to advance ideas is going to be through you know these little screens that we carry in our in our phones. And so, right. so the question that I kind of brought to the New Republic was, what if you built a staff, an editorial staff that didn't think about the difference between print and digital? What if they all were uh, fairly fluent in, 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 in digital storytelling already and combined that with a great um, you know, identification with the historical values and craft of putting out you know, a high-quality journalistic uh, publication? 
how could you what would that look like and that and 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 part of that was 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 audience i mean it needed to be able to reach uh, you know the, the the idea that you reach just the few people that matter and then they kind of spread out i think that's completely uh, change you, you you in order to have influence you do need to be popular and you do need to 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 reach people and in order to do that you need to have a a, a staff that 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 looks like your the the readership that you hope to 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 earn um, and so you know all of this from a staffing level and also sort of from a you know kind of a technical skill level <laughs> came together to really kind of be a idea for a new republic that that was rebuilt for this new modern age that we live in. It's interesting to hear you say that because what you said is not what I expected you to say. I expected you to say, and I think actually what I expected you to say is my own viewpoint, so uh, that that makes sense that I expected you to agree (laughs) with me, was was that there is no such thing as, as institutions, that every new republic is kind of the sum of its parts. You know, the 1970s new republic is the 1970s new republic. If you're a person of color and you felt like the 1970s New Republic was kind of fucked up. You're right. Like, <laughs> you know, we're a new, you know, the, the slate sort of gets wiped clean. But the way that you're describing it, you do really feel like that there's sort of like an underlying value and ethic that dates back to the first issue that's continuous, which I think is a noble idea. I'm wondering what you think, though, in today's world where – you have all of these institutions, every institution that ever existed that didn't completely run out of money. And even the ones that did run out of money are doing a Kickstarter and trying to get back on the horse. And then you have Silicon Valley pumping money into many, many new projects, one of which you, you were working at. And then you've also got, you know, students, people putting together CMS and coming out with their own thing. It's, it it seems like there isn't, it's like, um, the, the town graveyard, is full and we need a new place to like yeah. bury all the bodies like we there's not enough ground um for all of these institutions to exist the new institutions the old institutions i mean i guess i wonder knowing that there were many many great magazines that have existed um how you sort of think about like w- which ones should stay like what which one why why the new republic and not magazine X that went out of business or whatever. Like, I guess I wonder like how you view its place in a landscape that includes all of that new stuff. Well, I've thought about institutions and how you define an institution. Yeah. And my best definition now is an institution is something that keeps doing the same thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting thing that happened. You know, you're talking about how do you take the the storm of, of, of takes. Um, yeah. One thing that I remember those early days, um, you know, I had a new job. I was new to the place. Um, I came to it with a, a great deal of respect, but didn't feel like I had any, you know, special claim to, to it. Um, but in this moment, I realized that there was all of these people who wanted to see the place die mm-hmm. and that the only way that it was going to continue is by someone wanting to see it continue. Yeah. And I realized I was one of those people now. And so 
if you go back to the definition of institution of a place that continues to do the same thing, it requires somehow recruiting a steady stream of people that see the value of, of, of it. Right. And so when institutions die, no one has like a, an ability to kind of point and say, you are worthy and you're not. Right. It really is about whether or not people come together and say, I want to dedicate myself to this. I believe in this. I agree with you. I think that there there is a value in continuity in the world and, and that we we don't need to constantly repave every <laughs> parking lot yeah. um, out there. The thing it brings up in my mind is we're in a period of rapid change um, for the media. I assume that the rate of change will continue to accelerate. There isn't the idea that we're changing really rapidly now, but then we're going to smooth back out and, and not change again. So it sounds to me like as you came into the new republic, you felt a need to not reboot, but to, you know, to find the audience. And, and perhaps that was something that could have even been done earlier, something that could have could be construed as overdue some of those changes. How do you create an institution that has that continuity and has that mission of continuing to yeah. exist while knowing that you are on unstable ground and yeah. that things are changing more rapidly they, than they were from, say, 1914 to... 2000. The interesting thing about the New Republic's history is that it has many periodic breaks. I think, you know, the from the 70s until, you know, the basically the 40 years right. while while uh, Marty Peretz was was the owner of it was well, it's almost 40% of its lifespan, so that's a that's a, you could say that it was a stable organization. But if you look before then, after the World War II, the son of the of the original financier came back from the war and took it over and like he decided he was going to install Henry Wallace before he was going to run for president to as the editor which was a huge violation of his standing policy not to be affiliated with any candidate or, pol or political party and the whole staff revolted and then he moved the office to Washington and I mean and it was all covered in in, in the New York Times yep. in, in very much the the same language that I I was reading at the time and and it really impressed upon me that you know there the, the thing that is special about institutions is their resiliency. It's yes. that they're able to they they are not defined uh, by individuals. And I think that I think it's unhealthy when uh, when people assume that uh, individuals and institutions are are so closely identified because it means the institution will die with the individual. And if you have if you have any kind of long term view, then you have to be able to survive. You know the the human lifespan. So what you're saying is that we should do a cryogenics kind of thing to keep you going forever. <laughs> so, I mean, actually, I missed... No, the opposite. Okay. I, would, I would say the opposite. We should kill you now for the, for the benefit of the New Republic. Well, the New Republic, for the New Republic to survive, it must be able to survive me. And, right. And, and, and I, you know, I, I view myself as a, as a steward and I have to view myself as a temporary steward. And you are raising your youngest male child stick stick over your seat of course exactly. no actually i missed the best example in my um we're in a constant earthquake example which is uh you have been the editor of uh the new republic now for one year and you now answer to a new uh owner right as of several weeks ago i think that that's probably the biggest 
tumultuous thing that could happen, um, which is a different person is your boss. Was that something you were consulted about at all? Does that even does that even touch on you as the editor in chief, sort of, or are you cloistered in the library? Well, I think the reality of a publication like the New Republic that you know doesn't sell swimsuit issues or yeah. Um, yeah. you know <laughs> or have a, a you know gear guides. Um, is that it requires um, the, the 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 massive support of individuals, and yeah. that's been its history. And so, I'm not in a position to, to be that kind of funder. So I didn't have much say in any of yes. this. Uh, you were the underbidder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you would you give to someone coming into a, a position like yours, like someone who has to to I feel like I keep wanting to use the word rebuild, but rebuild yeah. is the wrong word. Someone who has to to reinvent um, on the fly. What have you learned in in that year that seems like it's been like ten years? Yeah, well, you're like Obama. You your your uh, your beard went gray. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's springtime. I'm I'm I'm, I'm uh, this will come off very soon. This yeah. is my winter beard. I yeah. think I think you've only seen me with a beard. Now. Yeah, because yeah. when I was working here, it was also January. Yeah, right? I think it was brown though. Yeah, when you yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got you know, like Obama, when it grows longer, yeah. it gets more gray. No, I, I know how that so, goes. I know uh, how that goes. I guess the advice is um, the one thing you would say is respect the institution, right, and understand it, and, and and try to try to try to fit into it. Institutions, because they have lives separate from the people who happen to be at the the helm at any particular time, means that. Those people don't have full control over them. I am constrained by what I can do at the New Republic by the New Republic, and 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 I guess that pressure comes from from outside. I mean, it's 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 really sort of a question of you know. It, it, there's all sorts of people that will take over and and push the boundaries. I mean, one of the best examples of this is when Tina Brown um, edited the New Yorker. You know, she was viewed as this total outsider of that culture, and she was, you know, I think um, inspired letter writing campaigns to, you know, get rid of her, and she gave Roseanne Barr the chance to edit it and whatnot. Now, I think history has shown that she really did a great service to that institution. She hired a lot of of people um, that we now consider some of the stalwarts of The New Yorker. Um, including David Remnick. And also, I mean, I, I, great spotter of talent. I mean, you know, she has a quite a quite a great list of, 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 of people that she's, she's spotted. Funny, in retrospect, letting Roseanne Barr edit an issue doesn't, it doesn't seem that revolutionary. I mean, it doesn't yeah. seem that bad. <laughs> right, it doesn't seem that bad. And, and, and I would say that, it, you know, is... It's not the New Republic uh, swimsuit issue. No. <laughs> and as much as she got hell at the time for... You know, disrespecting the traditions, um, she also really explored how far, how elastic those, the New Yorker being one of the most traditional of all publications, could be. What, where is the, where is the wiggle room? Where is the, where is the places you can, you can push it, and, and it pushed back, and, yeah. and, and, and I think that interplay is something that always happens. Um, at, Have you gotten shoved back by the New Republic's audience at all? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean personal. I mean like does it does it feel personal or does it feel like you're just a you're just a cog in the system? I think that one of the things that I've done that has always kind of struck me as the oddest pushback is 
the conservatives who are aghast that the New Republic would be a, you know, a, a left-leaning publication. Um, that they're aghast at that. Yeah, yeah. There's there. I, I think the greatest critics that I have um, encountered have been sort of the the, the right-wing types hmm. who think that the publication has been trashed, and that's always kind of struck me as a a, a little bit of concern trolling. But also, I just want to make sure you're all right, Gabriel. <laughs> Um, but also, I think it's it the vision. The original vision for the New Republic is centered in liberalism, and liberalism is a very uneasy state. And the New Republic has always done this. It's always held the line against you know leftist radicalism. You know, it fights on two fronts, and and I think that the that pressures will push it adrift either way. Um, and I think the, the most recent drift has been to the right. Um, yeah. and, 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 it, and I think for, for a couple decades, it was most comfortable being the, 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 the liberal critic of the left. Right. Um, and thus the famous phrase, even the liberal new republic. Sometimes I, I kind of think, you know, I, I think of Alan Colmes' role on on Sean Hannity's show, um, it, it, there there's sort of this value in being like, even the liberal Alan Colmes thinks that you know right. blah 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 happens, and it, it, these are all sort of in the worst forms, or 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 maybe like the the Washington. The, the Washington General's role for the Harlem Globetrotters, like you know, it's it's it's, yes. it's it's all in the effort of putting on a show, which is that there is a there's a there's two sides here. Oh, uh, I see. So the conservatives are in, the the right wing is in some ways afraid that you have like um, failed to get the Washington Generals assembled and in their uniforms to get on the court. Is that kind <laughs> yes, of the attitude? And, 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 to, and to go out and then and say you know and make the liberal case for, you know, well, I mean, famously, it was the liberal case for invading Iraq was was, right. was the position. And or, um, you know, and, and you read that stuff and, and it's tough, tough to read that stuff and think of the publication as being a, a voice of any kind of, you know, left wing um, political tradition. Um, and I think that you can explain the, the it's easy to explain how it got there, but walking it back away from that has been something that has uh, created sort of this pushback out of its recent history where it's, you know, how dare we, one of the, the biggest, the biggest things that has happened in the last year is issues of identity, whether it's race or gender, um, have been frequently in, in our political campaigns. Um, and and that's always been an area that, um, you know, the, the New Republic was kind of historically a skeptic of and liked to be a, a, a sort of a liberal critic I of, see. of that. And so by us, you know, engaging topics like race or um, or gender, I think, you know, there's 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 people who will say like, you know, this is this is you're not playing fair. I'm, my interest in politics is more sort of removed. It was interesting. I was preparing for this, and I had two tabs open in my browser, and I had on the left hand side um, long forms archive of New Republic stories that we've linked to, and it was several stories that were very memorable to me. I think my favorite thing you've done was that um, uh, the the Tumblr teens story. Fantastic story. Thank you. And then I was sort of reading about the sale of the New Republic, and I kept hearing sort of the, the voice of liberalism. We're going to bring back like various sound bites, almost all of which had the word liberalism, and all almost all of which um, characterized the New Republic as a political magazine. Mm -hmm. 
Is there room for a political magazine today? Is there an interest in a political magazine for the three years um, that aren't a presidential election cycle? What is the role of covering politics? Because for me as a reader, I find that I gravitate far less towards political features, like on long form. If you look at our editorial mix, we probably link to more stories about serial killers than we do about political candidates. What what has it been like jumping into a political magazine, and what do you think the role of a political magazine today is? Well, I'm going to give you a long answer on this one. Um, The New Republic from its beginnings always was a politics and culture magazine. Yes. Um, and, and I think that what that means to me is that when a publication like The New Republic is at its best, it offers a prism to look at the entire world, not just what's going on in the in the in the political campaign or is happening in, in, in DC. In that, you know, that experiment that um, that embarked on, um, it really was trying to be, not cover everything, but be something that was applicable to everything. Um, you know, one of the, some of the, the things that it mentioned were, you know, labor and feminism and, 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 and humor. And, you know, um, these were all in sort of the original vision of, of what it, it, it allowed. And I think that that's part of building an audience. Um, if you only cover straight politics, then you become sort of, you know, this one specialty tool in a toolbox that people have for understanding the world. And so one of the things that I've been trying to do is really expand our purview. And technology has been one of them. We, um, you know, Elspeth Reeve, she wrote that fantastic Tumblr teens piece. Roger Hodge wrote a wonderful look at the weird management uh, experiment at Zappos. Um, You know, one of uh, my early pieces was um, uh, early covers was about um, the the Philippine uh, these these um, these shops in the Philippines that basically manufactured fake Facebook profiles that could then be sold to various businesses and uh, and really kind of and and all three of those pieces really kind of applied deep physical reporting to a online culture and really kind of understood that because we need to understand how these things and how these things are how these things are are shaping us so um so it needs to be pervasive and also the the magazine has always had a very robust coverage of uh, of literature and the arts and that's also something that um that we've continued and so um you know when we were thinking you know we we have um, you know, Brian Boitler and Jeet here uh, have been, um, and others, but have been doing a wonderful job of covering the uh, the, the the presidential election on a day to day and hour to hour basis. Um, I think they're writing some of the leading commentary about you know what's going on in both of the primaries, um, and, and and that's vital to the to the publication. But at the same time, you know, we had to figure out ways that we could do things unique um, and, and, and different. I mean, it's it's very difficult to compete in in the when you know these oceans of words are being spilled on 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 a very few a handful of, of subjects. And so, um, you know, the the issue that you have with which is um, we just closed the next one, but this is our last issue with Bernie Sanders. In the coming issue, uh, we asked Clancy Martin to profile. Ted Cruz, um, and then uh, the 
cover story is Patricia Lockwood on Trump, um, and we have a uh, we have a Hillary one in the that um, in in the works. Yeah. Um, and the idea was really to bring these literary views on these characters and to kind of understand them in a way that isn't just in the horse race. You know, is Bernie going to outpace Hillary in the caucuses versus the open primaries, and bring something to the table that is a real sort of lasting look at who these characters are. As a publisher, as an editor of both a a website and a print publication, I've really tried to make the print publication be something timeless. Um, So we're not trying to bring something out that's going to do really well in between, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire when people are talking about X, I'm really trying to think about, all right, is this going to be something that people can put on their shelves and come to in the spring of 2017 and say, Bernie Sanders, yeah, what was that guy? And Who really, the fuck was John Kasich? <laughs> we did not assign a John Kasich profile. I, that was probably a mistake. He will, he will probably personally contact you about that. <laughs> um, and I think that is kind of an epitome of sort of this meld this idea of the new republic is not just a political coverage entity but also something that has a worldview has has a point of view that expands lots of different subjects and so we just decided to marshal all of those resources onto onto this one little um, little place so i'm i'm very proud of those 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 pieces and i think you know we also i think the uh, the yarn is 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 an area that we learn. I mean, one of the other pieces I'm quite proud of um, that we published this past year was um, Jen Percy's piece on um, Christian militias. Oh yeah, that was excellent. Yeah. And and you read that that piece that she wrote for us, and and it's and it came out last last. Uh, it was on our September issue, so it came out end of last summer. Um, Right as sort of a lot of focus was was building on ISIS and there was all this uh, pressure to should we invade and you know should we send troops and it's not a it's it, it's not a polemic about you know what the proper policy is it's really about you know what is happening on the ground who are these people and I think anyone who reads it walks away with a very deep understanding of all right, this is what this, this this particular situation looks like. And it also, you know, any idea that we're going to win hearts and minds or we're going to be able to alter these 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 grounds by flooding guns into the hands of this ragtag militia seems pretty uh, far-fetched um, after after you read her report. And, and I think that's sort of how the New Republic can work at its best, um, you know, bringing that kind of reporting into it that can inform these other discussions, which we also do um, in, 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 other, in other places. Thank you, Gabriel Snyder. Thank you. And that was the Longform Podcast. Thanks very much to Gabriel Snyder for coming back for this chat. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Courtney Harrell, all of our sponsors, MailChimp, Harry's, Trunk Club, Bombas. Get yourself some new sock. Bombas.com slash longform. 20% off socks. It's a bonanza. We'll be back next week. Oh, one more thing. Go on iTunes. Give us a rating or a review. It helps boost my ego. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.